This is a big year. The Ohio Lottery's golden anniversary. 50 years of excitement, of growing jackpots and crossed fingers. 50 years of funding for schools, of changed lives and brightened days. 50 years of fun. And that is worth celebrating. So watch for can't-miss promotions, huge events, and new games that will make the Ohio Lottery's 50th year its biggest one yet. Learn more at funturns50.com. Whether you're a morning person or a bedtime procrastinator, everyone deserves a mattress that works for their style. And you'll find the best mattress for you at Ashley. The new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley brings you one-of-a-kind body-conforming technology, making every sleep tailored to be your best. The collection also features cool-to-the-touch covers and motion absorption to help minimize sleep disruptions from partners, pets, or kids. Shop the all-new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. Hi, I'm Anna Marie Cox. Welcome to With Friends Like These. I feel like I should put a content warning on this episode for extremely gloomy. It's about climate change and climate change solutions, or rather some things that seem like solutions. Elizabeth Colbert, a staff writer at The New Yorker, went out and investigated what would happen if some of these solutions were implemented. And it turns out these solutions create more problems. Elizabeth is here to talk about her book, Under a White Sky, The Nature of the Future, And she is coming right up. Elizabeth, welcome to the show. I will lay out sort of for listeners who may not be familiar uh, with your work. It's about climate change. And this book in particular is a kind of meta exploration in some ways of climate change. It's about trying to fix what we have done and whether or not the fixes cause more harm. I would say that's at least one enormous theme. Um, And it is also about that waiting for rescue. Like, what are we going to do? Yes, exactly. Exactly. And uh, thinking that rescue will come in one, uh, holding on to these sort of talismanic or um, token tokens of our rescue that are not necessarily uh, how rescue will come. If rescue does come, I might add. So let's go through some of these examples that I think will make more clear kind of the, the general theme here. There are instances where humans go back and try to fix what humans have done. And you raise questions about whether or not these are, these are good ideas, whether or not they'll work. What's your favorite example of this? At the center of the book is a chapter on on gene editing, which is a you know tremendous topic and has become tremendously easier over the last decade or so owing to the advent of CRISPR. Um, and at the center of that chapter is a is a toad, an imported toad, a cane toad, uh, which was released in Australia maybe 80 years ago or so and has wreaked havoc, been wreaking havoc ever since. Um, so that's one of the kind of, you know, tools that I think, or potential instruments of rescue has that, that people I think would find uh, 
there's a certain creepiness factor there. Um, but it was actually great, great fun to, you know, meet these toads. And uh, so that was a, a lovely adventure. I even did, I ordered a kit um, just to see how easy it really is to genetically modify an organism in your spare time. And it, this kit, um, which came from a company in California, which is always, I think, skirting the edge of what's legal, uh, sent me a um, strain of E. coli, which can be, you know, very dangerous path- pathogen, but this is, was ostensibly at least a non-pathogenic strain and allowed me to gene edit it so that it was antibiotic resistant. And I believe that I successfully did that. And to describe the arc of most of these stories, it has to do with uh, many times it's an invasive species that was introduced to solve a problem of some kind, a a genuine problem. And then the invasive species, of course, wrecks its own havoc upon the environment. And one of the examples you use, I think, will be resonant for a lot of people because it has to do with the um, influence of Silent Spring. Yeah, that's a, sure, that's a kind of a very weird irony and I was not aware of it until I embarked on this book project but um, you know Silent Spring was published in 1962 and it had a tremendous influence in in a way that it's hard to imagine even a book having that much influence these days Uh, and Rachel Carson was called in front of you know congressional committees and became a celebrity something that she was really not did not want. She was a pretty shy person. But anyway, uh, what Rachel Carson was pointing to in Silent Spring was this way in which we were sort of indiscriminately dousing the world with pesticides, very serious poisons, um, which were having toxic effects up and down the food chain. You know, um, the reason that you know, for example, bald eagle populations crashed owing to, you know, DDT. And so we weren't just targeting pest species. We were getting a lot of other, you know, bycatch as it were. And her, the book ends with a chapter on, well, what should we should do instead? And what she really advocated and advocates in that chapter is, is what's become known as biocontrol. So you use one, you know, species to, as a, predator or a parasite of a species that you're trying to eliminate or reduce. And it sounds good in theory. And, and to be frank, we use it a lot, a lot, a lot. Um, but it can also go terribly wrong. And so in this particular case, um, the U.S. government actually imported these various species of carp from Asia that were supposed to do various jobs Uh, that we didn't want to have to do with herbicides. So for example, eat aquatic weeds. One species was imported to eat aquatic weeds. Uh, One species was uh, imported to sort of clean up waterways that were filled with, you know, sewage in improperly treated or incompletely treated sewage. They all got, all of these species got loose, wrecked various different kinds of habits depending on their own eating habits. But collectively they've become They've just basically taken over. They were introduced mainly in the southeast, uh, and they've but they worked their way, you know, from the tributes from various tributaries of the Mississippi into the Mississippi, up the Mississippi, 
uh, and into new tributaries of the Mississippi. I mean, and this continues, the saga continues, the fish are still on the move. And in the southeastern U.S., we actually have a very diverse mollusk fauna uh, and a very endangered mollusk fauna. It was already endangered before we introduced these carp. And now you have this mollusk-eating fish being let loose on these very threatened populations of mollusks. So that's another reason why uh, they're not so good to have around. And one of the the dark humor, one of the places of dark humor in the book is that these carp have been successfully demonized, right? People hate these carp. And there's a movement to try and get people to eat them. You know, the example is given of, um, you know, Paul Prudhomme, the chef from New Orleans, created this dish that used uh, snapper, I guess it was a red, it was a red snapper. And, um, you know, the fish were just fished into oblivion. And so here are the ideas. Well, here's a fish we would like to fish into oblivion. Uh, could we create, you know, sort of uh, a killer dish, as it were, that would get everyone in America eating, you know, Asian carp, and then we would, it could at least successfully reduce their numbers. Uh, because right now, interestingly, once again, just one of these weird quirks of history, I guess, um, Asian carp, all of these species are prized as food species. In Asia, they're actually grown in aquaculture in enormous numbers. Um, but they're very bony and Americans don't like to eat bony fish. And the, so the, com, the this is when I knew what the book was going to be about is when you go to the carp festival and there's all these different, like you can eat carp this way, you can eat carp that way. You know, people like doing these dishes and there is one chef whose solution on the surface seems pretty good. He's uh, invented a tasty dish that who knows is maybe the killer dish, like the killer app for Asian carp. But in order to make this dish, he flies the carp to, where is it? China? Yes. The fish are fished in Louisiana and then they are shipped back to Asia, which, you know, another irony, the ironies are piling up here pretty quickly uh, to be processed because labor costs in the U.S. are so high. And then they're shipped back to the U.S. frozen in finished form as these sort of carp cakes, I guess, which are quite tasty. I do want to say I really recommend them. Um, yes. And he would like to get them processed here in the U.S. And maybe one day someone will succeed at that. But as I said, the labor cost problem is what prevents that from happening. And this sort of starts the book. And then you kind of get into progressively more intricate problems and solutions where Sometimes the solutions seem obvious, sometimes they don't, but in every case, it is um, humankind attempting to address a problem that they caused. So I, I asked you if you had a favorite intervention. I have a favorite intervention. That, so the last section of the book is about the solar geoengineering, which is the most, uh, I mean, okay, I thought gene editing was scary. <laughs> <laughs> solar geoengineering i had no idea i should be so afraid there are enormous consequences to that right and is on the, on the mild form it's like cloud seeding and stuff but it's messing with the atmosphere in order to do something about global warming you know we are an extraordinary species that would be able to 
transform the atmosphere basically in you know one or two generations we've really dramatically altered the atmosphere dramatically altered the climate uh and that could conceive of the way out of this being to alter the atmosphere again uh to counteract the way we altered the atmosphere uh to begin with and you know as you say all of these stories build on that theme until we finally get to what seems like to us to be the ultimate you know intervention to solve another intervention but may may not be we may you know there may be even bigger ones on the horizon that have people haven't even thought of yet so yeah stay tuned and one of the themes another theme in the book is actually that these scientists that you profile are are trying i won't say they're trying to be heroes but they are the earnestness and seriousness which, which, with which they pursue these ideas, some of which are, or come from, you know, trying to, trying to come up with the wildest solution you can, right, is really compelling. And I want to know what you found like, profiling these scientists who are trying so hard to make, to, to do the right thing, to fix it. Yeah, I mean, everyone I interviewed to a, to a person, uh, I think really was very committed to the project at hand and saw it as contributing to, you know, to a solution or a potential solution was, was working on that in good faith was not motivated by, you know, a lot of sometimes especially when we're dealing with topics like gene editing or geoengineering, there's a kind of, you know, Dr. Frankenstein um, component. Now I should say that Dr. Frankenstein is a, is a perfectly reasonable person in, in, in Frankenstein. Uh, He just kind of loses control of things. And Frankenstein exists because of climate change. Well, yes, that's an interesting side. Absolutely. So, um, Frankenstein was written in this extraordinary summer. So, so to understand the weird connection here, um, the idea behind geoengineering really comes from volcanoes, uh, which spew a lot of sulfur dioxide into the stratosphere, major volcanoes, and that has a temporary cooling effect as these um, what are called aerosols. They're like these tiny little droplets that reflect a lot of sunlight. They they drift around for a couple of years. They produce these beautiful sunsets and then they fall to earth after a couple of years. So this cooling effect is uh, temporary, but can be very significant. And in the, uh, in 1815, there was really, I think sort of the biggest uh, volcanic eruption in recorded history of, of Mount Tambora in Indonesia. And that had such a dramatic effect that it was called the year without a summer. Um, the temperatures in Europe and in North America were, were kind of crazily chilly. And that summer, uh, Mary Shelley uh, and her husband and her friends famously went to Switzerland and it was so rainy and so bleak that they decided to have a contest stay home. They were inside all the time. They decided to have a contest to write you know, kind of a gothic tale. And Frankenstein was the result of that. But just to finish that thought that that these people, you know, well, well, we might all say, well, you know, should we be doing that? Shouldn't we be doing that? Um, 
I, I do want to speak up in be, on behalf of all the scientists that I interviewed who were genuinely, I think, um, trying to find solutions to very, very naughty problems. It is enough to try to do something, right? But the environment is particularly unforgiving. Yes, exactly. Exactly. And, and you know, I quote a British environmentalist activist writer, Paul Kingsnorth, who's, who's writing, whose work I, I find really interesting. And uh, at one point he says, you know, I don't think I'll get the quote exactly right, but it's basically it's sometimes doing something is better than doing nothing. And sometimes it's the reverse. And, you know, the real difficulty in a lot of the situations that we've created and here I'm talking, I am talking ecologically, but also, you know, have tremendous human potential human impacts uh, is it's hard to know which is which. And there's some interesting suggestions about um, how to shift our, our frame for the environment in your book. Um, a really important one is this idea that there is no nature as we kind of think of it, perhaps as we grew up with it, or we talk about it in a casual way, that this idea that nature is something else besides us is definitely no longer the case. Well, I, I don't think that we want to say that, you know, nature doesn't exist, but the idea of nature as a an independent realm from humanity is increasingly um, a threatened idea, I guess. And, you know, Bill McKibben wrote The End of Nature all the way back in 1989. And, you know, many people would go farther back than that to identify this, you know, moment at which humans and nature became sort of in, in, inextricably intertwined. Um, but now, you know, there's, there's nowhere that you can go on earth where you can't find human traces. And by this, I don't just mean, you know, litter people left by the side of the road, although that is doubtless, you know, increasingly also true, but there are places where you can go where there's, you know, really no, no litter and no obvious signs of human uh, settlement, but you know, the atmosphere has been changed. The climate has been changed. Uh, you can go to the deepest trenches of the ocean and find these same traces. You can go uh, to the middle of, you know, the Antarctic ice sheet. Um, so we were already, we're, we're having such a profound influence on planet Earth that it's very hard at this point and becoming increasingly hard to say where human influence leaves off and, and nature begins. Now, this doesn't mean that we are in control of this situation. I mean, I think climate change is a very good example of that. We are influencing the climate. We are determining, you know, sort of its trajectory, but we're not in control of it. And I think one reason why I really appreciated that um, description of that, of that shift in frame, and it, I found it helpful in reading the rest of the book, is that there is not a natural state to go back to anymore. That when we talk about healing the earth or we talk about fixing the climate, I mean, whatever the kinds of language I think that a lot of people use to describe uh, ambitions for climate change aren't the right ones. This notion that there is something we could go back to. And I do think that that is um, increasingly kind of a 
romantic notion and not really dealing with the reality of the situation. And in climate change brings that home pretty vividly, I'm afraid, which is, you know, once you change the climate, uh, which we have and which we continue to do, you, you don't, you can't roll that one back. Um, and that's why we get to geoengineering, to be honest, because once you dump a lot of CO2 into the atmosphere, as we have, as we continue to do every day, um, that, that stays up in the atmosphere for a long time, um, for all intents and purposes, you know, forever. And it will continue to warm the planet for a long time. So you can't just reverse that. You know, there's a lot of talk about reversing climate change. If you really want to, you know, reverse climate change in the sense of have cooler temperatures again, <laughs> then you are forced to resort to something like geoengineering. Coming right back to continue our talk with Elizabeth Colbert in just a minute. With Friends Like These is brought to you by BetterHelp. What interferes with your happiness? You know, the pandemic for me has given me too much time to think because it's not even really thinking. It's ruminating. I think about the would haves and could haves and why didn't I and why did I? And it's completely unhelpful. And I usually need someone else to snap me out of it. I need a therapist. BetterHelp will assess your needs and match you with your own licensed professional therapist. You can connect in a safe and private online environment, making it so convenient you can begin communicating in under 24 hours. It's not self-help, it's professional counseling. Send a message to your counselor anytime and you'll get a timely and thoughtful response. Plus, you can schedule weekly video or phone sessions, all without ever having to sit in an uncomfortable waiting room. BetterHelp is committed to facilitating great therapeutic matches, so they make it easy and free of charge to change counselors if needed. The service is available for clients worldwide, and it's more affordable than traditional offline counseling, and financial aid is available. They can connect you with counselors whose expertise may not be available locally. They have licensed professional counselors who specialize in depression, anger, stress, anxiety, relationships, sleeping, and trauma. Anything you share is confidential. You can check out the testimonials posted daily on their site. And in fact, so many people have been using BetterHelp, they're recruiting additional counselors in all 50 states. I want you to start living a happier life today. As a listener, you'll get 10% off your first month by visiting betterhelp.com slash friends. Join over 1 million people who have taken charge of their mental health. Again, that's betterhelp.com slash friends. With Friends Like These is brought to you by Public Goods, the one-stop shop for sustainable, high-quality, everyday essentials made from clean ingredients at an affordable price. Everything from coffee to toilet paper and shampoo to pet food. Public Goods is your new everything store, thoughtfully designed for the conscious consumer. Rather than buying from a bunch of single product brands, Public Goods members can buy all of their premium essentials in one place with one beautiful, streamlined aesthetic. And I will tell you something a little embarrassing. I love that clean aesthetic so much that every once in a while I will open up my kitchen cabinet and just admire it. How everything matches. The canned vegetables, the bag of cookies, the olive oil, everything. I find it very soothing. They use a membership model to keep costs low and pass on even more savings to their consumers. Best of all, you can make your first purchase with no obligation. They plant one tree for every order placed and incorporate sustainability into every part of their company. Join hundreds of thousands of others who have already switched to their new everything store. And we have worked out an awesome deal. 
just for with friends like these listeners, receive $15, that's $15 of your first public goods order with no minimum purchase. That's right. They are so confident. You will absolutely love their products and come back again and again. They're giving you $15 to spend on your first purchase. Plus, right now, receive your choice of either a free pack of bamboo straws or reusable storage wraps. I use my reusable storage wraps all the time. They're very good for cheese. They're very good for storing cheese know that. You have nothing to lose. Just go to publicgoods.com slash friends or use code friends at checkout. That is P-U-B-L-I-C-G-O-O-D-S.com forward slash friends to receive $15 off your first order. With Friends Like These is brought to you by Renewal by Anderson. Here's something we think everyone can agree on. We all like to save money on home improvement projects, and April is free window month at Renewal by Anderson. For a limited time, you can get your windows now and pay nothing for an entire year. That's zero money down, zero payments, and zero interest for 12 months. And when you buy one window, patio door, or entry door, get one for 40% off. Renewal by Anderson is the full-service replacement division of Anderson Corporation. That means you won't have to lift a finger. They manage every aspect of the project for you, and when they're done, you your new windows and doors will help you feel more comfortable in your home. Call today for a free window and door diagnosis at 866-308-0010 or visit their website at greatestwindows.com. That's 866-308-0010. Hurry, this sale ends on April 30th. Offer not available in all areas. Minimum purchase required. Discount in financing with approved credit only. Interest accrues from the date of purchase but is waived if paid in full by the end of the promotional period. See website for restrictions and license information. The living room is where you make life's most beautiful memories. But your sofa shouldn't be the one remembering them. The new life-resistant, high-performance furniture collection from Ashley is designed to withstand all the spills, slip-ups, and muddy paws that come with the best parts of life. Ashley high-performance sofas and recliners are soft, on-trend, and easy to clean. Shop the high-performance furniture in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. Hey everyone, it's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater, and this is your wake-up call. If you're paying too much for wireless service, you don't have to keep having that nightmare. Consumer Cellular has the same fast, reliable coverage as the leading carriers for less. And for a limited time, new customers receive their second month free when they sign up and use promo code MONTHFREE by May 31st. So why keep spending more than you have to? Seriously, wake up and call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com. Taxes, fees, and other third-party charges will apply. See website for additional details. Let's talk a little bit more about geoengineering because it is the climax of the book. It is sort of where you get to. Um, you start very small. Start with the little fish, fishies. Um, actually, the carp, I guess, are the, are the people you start. The people. <laughs> the carp are who you start with. But you get, you get progressively larger in sort of your view. And this final view of the book is from space, sort of. And these are people who are have enormous ideas because they see the enormous problem. And they're the people I thought about the most when I was thinking about the earnestness and, and the, the insincere d- desire, you know, to like push, push, push the science into realms that seem uncomfortable because this problem is so bad. So do you want to talk about some of the solutions that, that, that they offer solutions is not really even the right word. I think I've fallen back into using the wrong metaphors because I don't think you can look at 
of response to climate change as a solution. It's simply a response. Right. Well, there is this notion, you know, can we, if you wanted to, you know, actually try to, you know, quote unquote, fix the climate, um, you know, one of the ideas out there is, well, can you take CO2 that we've put up in the air and can you take it out of the air? Now, that one is really key, unfortunately. It turns out to be quite key because the idea that we're going to take CO2 out of the air is already built into a lot of these projections and scenarios that are used by the groups looking at, you know, how can we keep average global temperatures from rising more than two degrees C, which has been adopted for reasons that we can talk about or ignore for now as this sort of, you know, threshold over which you do not want to go. And I think it's important to realize that, you know, there's in most of those scenarios that do not involve, you know, immediately shutting off all fossil fuel infrastructure, which is, you know, extremely difficult to do. Uh, there's this idea, well, we will, you know, continue to use fossil fuels for a while. We'll ramp it down. Eventually we will have to get to zero uh, for this to work. Um, But then we'll be able to, you know, we'll be in this situation that's called overshoot. We'll, you know, have too much CO2 up there. We will have to get some of it back out. And people have come up with all sorts of ideas, once again, that sound comical, sort of, but, you know, maybe we will be pursuing some of them for how you might do this. So for example, trees take up CO2 as they grow, but unfortunately when they rot, they give that CO2 up. So, you know, one idea that I write about is, well, you grow trees, you cut them down, you bury them in these huge trenches uh, so that they don't rot. Alternatively, you could chuck them in the ocean where also the cold temperatures would presumably prevent them from rotting. So there are all sorts of, um, I mean, the list goes on and on of ways that you could, once again, in theory, try to suck CO2 out of the air. They all bring with them, you know, their own complexities, to say the least. And and the main complexity has to do with what carbon you generate in trying to get the carbon out, at least for things like the tree disposal idea. That's one big problem, exactly. Um, if you're getting your energy, if you're still getting energy from fossil fuels, you know, then you're adding to the problem that you want to eliminate. But in theory, you know, a lot of these are sort of, well, one day we're going to have so much energy from other sources, uh, whatever these carbon-free sources are going to be. Um, that we will be able to use some of that energy to, you know, go back and rectify, you know, try to clean up the mess we already made. Um, But, you know, even if that were true, there are still other hurdles, one of which is simply a land use hurdle, you know, for the the tree idea, let's say, Um, you know, we're talking about a lot of trees. Uh, I think the idea is an area, you know, something the size of the U.S., Uh, planted with these trees that are supposed to do nothing but soak up carbon. Um, You know, but there's a reason why a lot of the world uh, we're actually cutting down forests, not, you know, not planting them, unfortunately. Um, And that reason is, you know, we're 
putting more land into agricultural production. You know, there are reasons why people are doing this. So it's hard to um, see exactly where we're going to get enough land to put it, set it aside for these projects. And if you don't mind, maybe we should explore some of the more science fiction-y aspects. Uh, I mentioned the diamond dust, which sounds very much to me like someone could, like a Neil Stevenson novel. Uh, but, but would you like to explain how that works? Yes. The diamond dust is, is part of this sort of suite of ideas um, that all go under the title of solar geoengineering. Um, and that gets us back, you know, to Mount Tambora and the uh, year without a summer volcanic eruptions pour a lot of sulfur dioxide into the stratosphere, cool the earth by reflecting sunlight back to space. Could we do that? Could we mimic volcanoes in some way? So put something into the stratosphere purposefully uh, on specially equipped planes that would have the same effect, create some kind of reflective haze and different substances, substances could potentially do that. One of which would be diamond dust. But what, what, but what could go wrong? Which, by the way, I kept on thinking to myself, why is that phrase not appearing more in this book? I think you use it exactly once. <laughs> One of the biggest fears is, you know, that a climate that has been, or an atmosphere that's been loaded up with carbon, you know, and you're getting a changing climate, you might be able to counteract that in, in average, on average, right? So, you know, you could get average global temperatures, you could bring them back to, you know, or, or, or stabilize them, let's put it that way, um, by, with this reflective haze. But would you really be getting the same weather patterns that you have now? Now, climate change is changing weather patterns. So it's not, I, you can't immediately say, well, you know, we need to keep the weather patterns we have now. We're not keeping the weather patterns we have now. That's sort of part of, gets back to a little bit what we were talking about before about, you know, you're, we're not going back. Um, so, you know, you have to weigh the dangers of these double forms of manipulation against the dangers of, you know, just climate change by itself. So you have to start from the right base here. But that's a serious, serious worry. And then that brings us to, questions of who controls this technology, it has global impacts, who gets to decide. I mean, it, you can pretty quickly, your head starts to spin with all of the potential geopolitical problems that arise. The situation is desperate. Like we are in a very tough place as a species. There are no easy answers to these things. And people might want to reach for on the one hand, well, let's just, you know, let's just stop doing what we're doing and, and, you know, go back as we've decided, discussed. And that's um, not really a viable answer at this point, unfortunately. And then there's this sort of techno optimist. Oh, we always think of a way out of these situations. Um, and, you know, some people do feel that that's true. I, I'm not one of them. <laughs> I don't think just because, you know, we've had, you know, we are all still here where there are more people on the planet than ever before. 
or, but when you think about it, you could, you could say, well, that means that humans always find a way out of things. Or you could say that means we're in an unprecedented situation. Um, there are more of us than ever before, you know, so you can look at it both ways. Stick with us. More climate change talk with Elizabeth Colbert coming right up. With Friends Like These is brought to you by Stamps.com. If someone gifted you extra time and money, what would you do? I suppose I would save mine to go somewhere when we can go places. I miss going places. But I don't miss going to the post office. Which is why I recommend mailing and shipping online at Stamps.com. Stamps.com allows you to mail and ship anytime, anywhere, right from your computer. Send letters, ship packages, and pay a lot less with discounted rates from USPS, UPS, and more. Stamps.com has saved businesses thousands of hours and tons of money. With Stamps.com, you get the services of the post office and UPS all in one place, and big discounts on mailing and shipping rates. Stamps.com brings the services of the U.S. Postal Service and UPS right to your computer. Stamps.com is a must-have for any business. Whether you're a small office sending out invoices, an online seller shipping out orders, or even a giant warehouse sending thousands of packages a day, Stamps.com can handle it all with ease. Simply use your computer to print official U.S. postage 24-7 for any letter, any package, any class of mail, anywhere you want to send it. Once the mail is ready, just schedule a pickup or drop it off. It's that simple. With Stamps.com, you get discounts of up to 40% off post office rates and up to 62% off you PS shipping rates. And Stamps.com is a fraction of the cost of expensive postage meters. Stamps.com is a no-brainer, saving you time and money. It's no wonder nearly 1 million small businesses already use Stamps.com. Stop wasting time going to the post office and go to Stamps.com instead. There's no risk. And use my promo code, FRIENDS. You get a special offer that includes a four-week trial plus free postage and a digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. Just go to Stamps.com, click on the microphone at the top of the homepage, and type in FRIENDS. That's Stamps.com. Promo code friends. Stamps.com. Never go to the post office again. With friends like these is brought to you by ZipRecruiter. If you're a business owner who's hiring, you probably face a lot of challenges when it comes to finding the right person for your role. I personally am new to hiring. I was a freelancer for almost my entire career because I didn't want to be a boss or have a boss. I don't know what I want an employee except that they shouldn't be me. That's why hiring can feel like trying to find a needle in a haystack. Sure, you can post your job to some job board, but then all you can do is hope that the right person comes along, which is why you should try ZipRecruiter for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash friends. When you post a job to ZipRecruiter, it sends it out to over 100 top job sites with one click. Then ZipRecruiter's matching technology finds people with the right skills and experience for your job and actively invites them to apply. In fact, ZipRecruiter is so effective that Four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. It's no wonder that over 2.3 million businesses have come to ZipRecruiter for their hiring needs. So while other companies overwhelm you with way too many options, ZipRecruiter finds you what you're looking for, the needle in the haystack. And right now you can try ZipRecruiter for free at this web address, ZipRecruiter.com slash friends. Once again, remember to go to this unique web address, ZipRecruiter.com slash friends, F-R-I-E-N-D-S, ZipRecruiter.com slash friends, the smartest way to hire. Yes, I did kind of want to bring it, uh, to bring the discussion into today, into you know where we are right now. And I am curious about you personally, because you write about 
climate change a lot. You know all of this stuff. I was saying before, I wouldn't expect sort of a normal human to be thinking constantly about the danger we're in, because that would just be very traumatic. But you are thinking a lot about the danger we're in. And that seems like it would have a cost. Um, yeah, no, I don't. It's not like something that I, you know, recommend for your <clears throat> mental health. How's that? Um <laughs> But I mean, I guess I have the advantage to a certain extent of I, it is a, um, you know, it's, it's not, it's not, it's not my avocation. It is really my vocation in a way. It's like, you know, if you're a trauma surgeon or whatever, people could say, well, how do you, how do you deal with all those, you know, bodies coming in with gunshot wounds and, you know, burns and, uh, I've never, you know, posed this question directly to an ER doctor, but I, I think that part of it is, well, I, I deal with it. That that's my job is to try to patch people up as best I can. And, um, you know, I also sort of take that attitude. My, my job is to explain to people as best I can, uh, what's happening here. <clears throat> I don't, you know, I'm not solving these problems, uh, individually. I don't even claim to have the solutions these problems, but I have sort of, you know, do feel that when I convey successfully convey some of these problems, hopefully uh, it will have some impact on, on the public discourse. That's really the best I can hope for. We are sometimes sort of sold the idea that if you do X, Y, Z, and you will be part of the solution, recycle, you know, buy carbon offsets, Often, sometimes it's a market solution of some kind. Literally, you're being sold that. And unfortunately, as you say, the solutions have to be at such a scale that we have to think in political terms, I think, social movement terms. Again, at a scale that I don't think most Americans, at least... Um, think. No, absolutely. I mean, this is going to require any major transformation of our, you know, of our, of how we get our energy, how we use our energy, you know, is not going to come from, uh, you know, everybody putting solar panels up, though everybody putting solar panels up is a good thing to do. I do <laughs> we probably should make also that clear. Yeah, it's not yeah. that you shouldn't do yeah. those things. No, absolutely. <laughs> everyone should do those things. And that would make, you know, <clears throat> literally if everyone did it, and I understand there are, you know, lots of cost barriers, et cetera, but, you know, anything that you can think of as an individual, which if universalized would actually make a difference, you know, is worth doing. That being said, as you point out, you know, we simply can't rely on the good will and, you know, open pocketbooks of, of Americans. And we need, you know, really, these are also have huge tech, technolo- technical, I shouldn't say technological, but we need, you know, a different grid, you know, uh, the parts of the country, it's even getting hard to put up solar because the whole grid needs to be, um, you know, transform. So we need massive policy changes. Now, the good news, and I'm rarely one uh, to offer good news, is, you know, the Biden administration has a lot of really smart people who, in 
key positions who completely understand this, know this stuff, you know, way better than, than you and I. Um, and so that's the good news. You know, the question of how much they will be able to accomplish in this insane political environment that we have right now. Um, that's an open question. We're going to, we're going to find that out. Staying in the here and now, uh, this book was interrupted by the pandemic. And you write just a little bit about the interaction of the pandemic and climate change. So you've had a few months since that went to the publisher. And I wonder if you could say any more about that. Well, I mean, the pandemic has raised all sorts of, you know, interesting questions and, you know, reduced our CO2 emissions, you know, significantly, though they're already popping back up. Um, But I think that the pandemic turned out to really play out in this kind of, it was kind of eerie and creepy once again, how much it followed sort of the pattern that I was writing about, which is, you know, it was a a sort of coupled human and natural event that caused this pandemic. It was some virus that, that jumped species were not sure how or what species yet, but that's pretty clearly the origins of the pandemic. And people had been predicting that for ever, you know, because of the way that we deal with animals, the way we go into the forest and, you know, bring out animals that have potentially, you know, deadly pathogens, or also the way that we treat our domestic animals, huge concentration of animals living in very close proximity to people who are just a reservoir, you know, for potential uh, zoonotic diseases. So, you know, you can go back and lots of books I could recommend that just predicted exactly what was going to happen. And then when you do get one of these um, spillover events, so where a species, you know, a virus jumps species, um, because of the way we live, once again, because we're so globalized, because we travel so much and we travel so far, it's everywhere immediately. So, you know, this disease was in Wuhan. And then within a couple weeks, months, it was in some of the most remote parts of the world. It was on the Kamchatka Peninsula. It was in the Falkland Islands, you know. And even at that point where we had let it get, you know, just completely globalized, we, we could have, through social control, you know, social measures, brought it back under control. We didn't do that. We just let it get completely out of control and uh, kill, you know, millions of people. Uh, And now we're all waiting around for the techno fix, which is this vaccine that hopefully I certainly (laughs) hope to get one. uh, And we hope to, it's going to, you know, save us from this, you know, calamity that we had a big, a part in spreading, and we're but we're also discovering, you know, that uh, we don't control this one, uh, and even the technofix, even the vaccines, which are amazing feats of you know biotech, really sophisticated, uh, cutting edge vaccines. You know, now there's a question of well, are there going to be these variants that are going to elude the vaccine, and that seems sort of more and more likely, you know, we're just getting all sorts of variants um, out there. Uh, And so we're going to have to, you know, we're quite possibly going to be perpetually dealing with this new disease, um, either in the form of, you know, booster shots or or whatever. 
Um, one of the anecdotes you share in the book is that a scientist asked you, "Are you do you ever feel pressure to have happy endings? Because I feel pressure to have happy endings. You don't answer that in the book. I feel like the answer is implied. I feel it right now. I want to pressure you to give a happy ending. Okay, well, the ha- I'll give you a happy ending. That, that quote, which was one of the last bits of reporting I did, literally, I was, I was at Harvard. That quote comes from a scientist named Dan Schrag at Harvard. And um, I was at Harvard. COVID was just about to shut down the campus. And when Dan said that, I was like, I so agree with you. I so, I so feel the same way. And he said, I, I'm a scientist. A lot of people want a happy ending. That's not my job. I don't do happy endings. Uh, basically, I, my job, you know, is to tell you what's happening. And that is uh, not a happy ending here. Um, but um, I guess that's an excuse for why we're not going to have a happy ending. I don't feel like it's my job, uh, you know, to give people happy endings. Um, if I had a happy ending, I would share it out. I would, you know, I'm not like opposed to happy endings. I, I like a good happy ending as much as the next uh, gal. Um, but I, I don't, I don't really have one. I don't think we know how this story is going to end and imposing a happy ending on it. You know, something that we as Americans really like, and that is really, as I say, once again, at the heart of this book, uh, the truth is we just don't know how this one's ending. This has been a delightful conversation about an incredibly depressing subject. Uh, thank you so much for coming on the show. Oh, thanks for having me. It was really a lot of fun. And that's it for the show. This is a production of Crooked Media. This show is produced by Allison Herrera with assistance from Izzy Margulies. And this episode was engineered by Louis Lino. Whitney Pastrick should not have as many opportunities as she does to do volunteer relief work. And in closing, I don't want to ruin Elizabeth's sober ending. I, I won't force happiness on you. What I can do is remind you that the bigger the problem, the more reason we can't give up, no matter how insurmountable the problem seems. And that applies to climate change, to dismantling white supremacy, and sometimes to getting out of bed in the morning. I sometimes have trouble believing that I can do these things, but I believe in you. And that means I have to believe in us. Take care of yourselves. Whether you're a morning person or a bedtime procrastinator, everyone deserves a mattress that works for their style. And you'll find the best mattress for you at Ashley. The new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley brings you one-of-a-kind body-conforming technology, making every sleep tailored to be your best. The collection also features cool-to-the-touch covers and motion absorption to help minimize sleep disruptions from partners, pets, or kids. Shop the all-new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. You can live out your MasterChef dream when you find a professional on Angie to tackle your dream kitchen remodel. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Visit Angie.com. You can do this when you Angie that.